You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. Well, welcome tonight. Uh, tonight, I'm also, uh, we, we are going to be carrying on in our series on reshape. Uh, we will be deferring the uh, conversation on heaven to the end of the course in order to explore what we're going to look at tonight. Now, I realize, just as an aside, I realize I have a bad habit. And it doesn't affect you guys in person, but it affects you guys. I take my sheets and I go, king, king, and apparently it's really loud, right? So you have to tell me those things because I, you know, I just got these little idiosyncrasies that I will not do anymore. I'll put my paper down very carefully. Okay, so sorry about that. All right, so tonight, tonight we're going to do something that's really ambitious. Really ambitious, but really important. Tonight we are going to explore how we got to now. And it's going to be a whirlwind tour. Um, now, this is going to be a challenge for those of you who maybe do not have a strong understanding of the past. Okay? That's okay. It is crucial, I think, it is crucial um, to learn how we think about things. And it, it, it's, it's crucial to remember that how we think about things did not come out of a vacuum, but there are connecting points along the way between the past and our current age. Um, and so, in order to make sense of where we are and when we are, we need to see how, where these ideas came from. Uh, because our views about God, his existence, or his non-existence, the meaning to life or the non-meaning to life, um, has, has a history. And so, tonight, we are going to walk through that history, and it's not going to be easy but it'll be fun I've worked on this I've worked on this lecture quite a bit to make it accessible but I'm just giving you from the get-go this is probably out of all the talks maybe politics too uh, no out of all the talks this is going to be just a little bit of a challenge but hopefully you'll find it quite interesting okay are you good okay so take a deep breath and just before we exhale and just before we dive in I just want to wish my friend Ernie a happy birthday. It's your birthday today. Happy birthday, Ernie. All right. You're turning 29. Yes. Oh, well done, Maxine. Yes. <laughs> okay. So here we go. Now, our, our modern age that we live in did not come out of nothing, but has its roots in history. And we need to know these roots. Uh, it's, it's important for us to know how we got to now. But here's a problem. How we look at history is not neutral. History, the study of history, is not the study of facts. It's the study of how people perceive the past. It doesn't mean these things aren't true. They are true, but they are shaped by historians' perspectives. So let me give you an example of how our reading of the past can be skewed by different ways of looking at the past. So typically, when you look at the history of the Western world, and we'll look at about 2,500 years of history, 
That's not ambitious, right? Um, it's usually divided in about four or five categories. You have these in your notes. We begin with the classical world, the Greco-Roman world, and that's usually divided between 6th century BC to about 5th century AD. Then you go from there to what is typically known as the Dark Ages, and that is from uh, around the 500s, so the 6th century BC. No, the Dark Ages is about the 5th century, the 400s, to the 9th century, to like maybe the late 800s, early 900s. Then you have the, middle, the medieval world, or the Middle Ages. Then you have the modern world, which goes up to about 1960. And then you have what is often called the postmodern world. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. Um, do you hear any bias or any kind of interpretation in the way I've labeled these different eras? What kind of bias do you hear? There's chron- okay, but explain. Okay, yeah, so yeah. You think about the more, the more recent age is the modern age, right? Or the postmodern age. But you think about modern, things that are modern. Are those positive things or negative things? If you buy something, a modern car or something that's modern, it's usually positive, right? Yeah, but a lot, a lot took place, Maxine, between those two statements. I know, but then the computer. Yeah. Look at where we are today as far as human interaction. Yeah, but the, 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 language, the language we use is, is, is quite important. So you think about the classical age. And you think about what is, what is, what is classical. Think of something that is a classic. Coke classic. That car is a classic. It's something that old, that's old that is good. Then you get the Dark Ages. What does that connote? <laughs> Darkness. Hard to see. May, backwards, yeah. And then you think about, and this is an important term, think about the Middle Ages. What does that tell you? It's somewhere in the middle. It's not important enough to be classic, and it's not modern enough to be modern. It's, it's, it's like the middle child, and I get that as a middle child. Nobody pays attention to the Middle Ages because they don't pay attention. Right? It's, yeah, but that would probably be more once we get to um, the early modern age, because modern age can be divided into three parts. But modern is good, and then postmodern is just a term that's like, we don't know what to call it, so we'll just say postmodern, which is a little problematic, because what do you do when you get after postmodern? Post-postmodern, yeah, there we go. So I just want to point that out, that the terms we use to describe the past are not neutral, but they actually have a bit of bias. And I think it's unfair, because as one guy puts it, Rodney Stark, he says, to my mind, quote, 
Anyone who believes that the era that witnessed the building of the Chartres Cathedral and the invention of Parliament and the university was the Dark Ages must be, he said something else, but also deeply, deeply ignorant. And so I think this is important. And that is kind of a pet peeve because I don't think the Dark Ages were dark and I don't think the Middle Ages should just be considered the Middle Ages. But those are the terms we have, so I just want to kind of lay that out. They're not neutral terms. Um, yeah, that's good, Laurie. These terms refer to a Western world by, uh, mindset. Uh, that's also part of the issue, yeah. Um, okay, so let's, we're going to do a brief history of the Western world. And I will use these categories. So you got the classical period, it's an area of shaped by the Greco-Roman ideas. Medieval period, characterized by what is called a synthesis of ideas. The modern period, characterized by new ideas, and the postmodern period, characterized by the deconstruction of ideas. Oh, so you ready? You ready? Okay, so just get the overall picture. This might be a lecture you may want to go back over again, <laughs> but here we go. Um, let's talk about the classical period. And the, cla and the reason why I'm doing this is that when we get our head around this, it's going to explain why we think the way we do today. And so I'm hoping as you're making your way through this, you're like, oh, so that's where that idea came from. Because ideas are really important. And when you know where the ideas come from, it helps you as a Christian to engage with different ideas that are floating around out there. Okay? So in the classical world, um, there's a number of people that speak into this, but of two of the most important people that shape the classical world are Plato and Aristotle. So Plato and his student Aristotle, you can see their years, they're both brilliant thinkers, and they're both trying to do the same thing. They're both trying to discover eternal, unchanging truths about the nature of the universe. Okay, about the nature of reality. Now, where they differ is how they arrive at these truths. And so there's a famous painting by this guy named Raphael, and in the painting, you see Plato and Aristotle. And Plato is pointing up, and Aristotle is pointing down. And so that's really important, because for Plato, really, the true reality is up. And so he would say the world is comprised of two realms. You have the visible realm, the material realm, and the invisible realm, the spiritual realm. In the visible world, what do we see? Well, we got things like chairs, tables, hockey players, different things, right? In the invisible world, which is up in the heavens, you have, what you have is a perfect picture of all these things. So on earth, you would have like just a poor representation, like a shadowy representation. So on Earth, you'd have like the Vancouver Canucks that would point to the perfection, which would be the Toronto Maple. No? Not last Saturday, anyhow. But this idea, okay, so you're sitting on a chair. We see a chair. This is an ordinary chair. But this chair, somewhere in the heavens, there's a perfect chair. And because there's a perfect chair, all these chairs are like shadowy representations of somewhere in heaven where is the perfect form of a chair. That's all that Plato's saying. It's, he's, he's, so he's trying to explain reality. 
He says, we look at trees, we know they're trees because they all point our attention to this perfect tree that's up in heaven, and these are just representations of this tree, okay? Aristotle says, yeah, I don't agree. Aristotle says, what you see is what you get. There may be heaven, but these, if you want to understand the world, just look at the world. You don't need a tree up in heaven, or you don't need a chair up in heaven. Just look at the chairs and you can understand things. Now, why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this? Well, this is important. See, Plato would say, what really matters is up in heaven. What really matters is the spiritual world. And what's not as good as the spiritual world is the physical world. The physical world just kind of points people to what is spiritual. And so things that are made out of matter are okay, but they're not as important as the spiritual things. And so your body is okay, but it's not as important as your soul, because your soul is spiritual and your body's well, just, just, just a body. Now you gotta file that away, because this idea that the body is, who cares, the soul is what really matters, Heaven is what really matters. Our time on earth is, who cares? Well, that begins to shape the church, and it begins to shape how we think about things. Um, for Aristotle, again, he says, don't look up in heaven. Just look at the world. We can make sense. We can use reason and understand the world. So let me just ask you, just with this in mind, which, which guy would have more influence on science? Aristotle, why? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, he he's yeah. In fact, he wrote some really interesting stuff on science, on on the on the nature of things. He says you just look at things and you can understand a lot of things about this world. And so Aristotle, you're absolutely right. Um, if you take Aristotle's road, you probably will end up better in science than you will with Plato. Good. Now, again, why does this matter? Well, these, these two guys, Plato and Aristotle, you have to realize we're still influenced by them today. We're still influenced by them today. Um, this idea, you think about... Um, you know, things that are spiritual are good. Things that are physical are not as good. You think about that idea in the church. You know, let's not worry about the nuts and bolts of a job and doing work. Let's just focus on spiritual things. That division between ordinary life and sublime life affects the church. We look at spiritual things as being better than physical things. Well, there's a reason for that, and it comes from these guys. This idea that we have a soul that is eternal. The Bible doesn't really teach that, does it? I'll have you look it up. Explore scripture and see if, if somewhere it teaches us that we have a soul that's eternal. I think that's maybe a hangover from, from Greek thinking. Um, and all these ideas begin to affect the church. Okay? So that's Plato and Aristotle. Are you with me so far? Okay? <laughs> Some of you are like, yes, <laughs> sort of. Yeah? Are you guys with me so far? Yeah? Good. All right. It just gets easier from now on. Okay. 
Um, from here, we go from the classical world and we enter into, let's say, the medieval world. I'm going to combine the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. So this is a period from about 5th century AD to about the 14th century AD. And the key word in this, in the Middle Ages, is the word synthesis, the, the joining together of different ideas. Um, you, if you remember, the Greco-Roman world was quite hostile to Christianity until who came to faith and changed everything? What was his name? Constantine. Yes, Constantine. Yeah, when the Roman Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian, sort of, um, what he does do is he stops persecuting the church. And it makes a big difference. Um, all of a sudden, the church goes from being under a lot of pressure, being persecuted, to now being, hey, our emperor's kind of open to Christianity. He makes Christianity legal. Later on in that same century, another guy comes along and says, you know what, Christianity is not only legal, it's the official religion, huzzah! And, and all the Christians are like, all right, let's you know, make the empire great again. And, uh... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so what happens then? Like if you, so what, can you think of what benefit that would be to the church? What kind of benefit would it, would it have? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it helped institutionalize the church within Roman society, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah, eternity in our hearts is not the same, though. Um, it also, um, you know, it used, it, used government, it used the state power, basically, to get rid of uh, slavery. Um, it uh, used state money to build churches um, and take caring of the, taking care of the poor and orphans. So, yeah. On the negative side, what's, some, what's the negative side with Constantine and the Roman Empire becoming Christian? <laughs> yeah. The state and the church get kind of mixed up. And all of a sudden, you get people who are living in the Roman Empire who are like, I don't even know, what's his name, Jesus? I don't care. I've never heard of him before, but I'm on his side if it means I'm going to get a good job with the government. And so you had a lot of people, you know, moving up, in the, up the ladder in the church who were actually pagans but pretended to be Christians because they knew it was beneficial. So it's a mixed bag. But in this, when the church becomes and the state becomes kind of close together, it allows some thinkers to emerge and just to think about things without worrying about being killed and thrown into the lions, uh, to the, to the arena, to the lions. And one of the guys who's, who's very key is, uh, okay, so leave the uh, topic on the immortal soul for an, uh, a while, otherwise you guys are going to miss out on this next part. I shouldn't have brought it up. Um, so one of the key guys who uh, comes on the scene here is Augustine, a fellow named Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine is huge. He's the most important thinker in the history of the church outside the Bible. That's how big he is. And he wrote a lot. So Laura, if you decide it today, today, from now on, all I'm going to read is Augustine. You may not make it to the end of your life and finishing all of his stuff. That's how much he wrote. 
Like, it's crazy. So much stuff. But Augustine is huge, and he's a huge, infl- um, uh, huge influence. One of the influences on Augustine was Plato. Okay, now I have to realize, Augustine is a big thinker, and he's influenced by Plato. And remember what Plato says, look up or look down? Plato says, look up, right? Look up. So Augustine takes some of Plato's ideas. And so for Augustine, this world that we see, and a lot of this sounds biblical too. It's a bit of a mixture. This world and its ways are passing away. Let's fix our attention on heaven because that is ultimately where the city of God is and that's where we're heading. Amen? Amen. Okay. But Augustine turns all of our attentions to the life to come, which is okay. But then what do we do about the life that we're in now? And for Augustine, everything was about heaven. You think about in the medieval world, have you ever gone to a medieval cathedral, like in England or anything like that? Have you ever, anybody ever been to one of those before? I'm sure you have, Jack, you've been everywhere, so yeah. And so you go into a cathedral, and we talked about this last semester, you go into a cathedral, and as soon as you walk into a cathedral, where's your attention drawn? Upwards. Upwards. It's just, it's brilliant. And they're designed to lift our attention up to the heavens. And when you look up to the heavens, that's the place where God dwells. So your heart's always being lifted up. And that's good. That's good. But the problem is, is one of the ideas that starts to emerge in all this was that our life, yeah, it's okay, but what matters most is escaping this life and getting into heaven. Okay. So what does that say about how we live our lives now? Well, we're just kind of waiting until we fly away. And so ultimate value and ultimate meaning is found not here, but in heaven. Again, think of Plato. And so the afterlife becomes a big deal. And so you get all these things that are introduced to help you figure out the afterlife. Uh, all sorts of rules, doctrines, beliefs about purgatory and different things, all with the attention to the afterlife. Okay? So what Plato, or what Augustine does is he mixes a bit of things. He mixes a bit of Platonism with Christianity. And so this becomes really important. Because we are in the Bible, when we talked about in the book of uh, Genesis, that the creation mandate is to um, be good stewards over creation, right? Uh, To be fruitful and multiply, right? Marriage, all those sorts of things. Well, with Augustine, who chooses to be celibate, after he had a concubine, but they became a Christian, and he chooses to be celibate, his idea is like, you know what? Yeah, marriage may be okay, but ultimately it's about our life with Jesus. And so he kind of downplayed some of these things that really matter, like marriage and our work and all sorts of things. And we, you know what? We're, have you ever heard somebody say, well, okay, he is, where somebody says, I'm just a lay person. I'm not a pastor. I'm just a lay person. Well, that idea is, I'm just a lay person, 
and not a priest or not a pastor. This division idea, this is where it comes from. This is certainly not in Scripture, right? So you're with me so far? Okay, let me just throw one more out there. Have you ever heard somebody say, I just need to look deep, deep inside myself to find out the true me. You want to know who you are? Mike, just look inside yourself. Look deep inside yourself. And you will know who you are. And find out the true, authentic you. And then go live that life. But this idea that this true self lies deep within me. And that this matters more than my body. So for example, if I look deep inside myself and I see myself not as a man, but maybe a woman, or not as a woman, or maybe a man, and, and I want my body to conform to this deep sense of self, those ideas have their source in this kind of platonic thinking. Or later on, we talk about this. What's, what, who are the guys who are influenced by Plato? Do you know what they're called? They're kind of a heresy within the church. Gnostics, yeah, they're the, the Gnostics, right? So the Gnostics would say the spirit is good, the body is down here. What matters more is spiritual things. The body is secondary. Well, so much of our, in our culture today, whether it be whatever it happens to look like, where our body is secondary to the true me that lies within, those ideas come ultimately back from Plato. And they even mix their way into the church. Are you with me? That's why this is important stuff. Because when you hear somebody say to you, I just got to be the true me. I just got to look inside and be the me I need to be. And to hell with my body. Whatever my body, whatever gets in the way, I will force my body to conform to this deep sense of me. That's not a biblical notion. I remember Dr. Proven talking about that on Saturday. The biblical notion is that our bodies and ourselves, they're together. Right? They are together. Okay. So you're with me so far? You're starting to see some of the influences? Now, are you really with me so far? Okay. The next person we're going to look at, and then it will get easier. But this next guy is probably the most difficult guy, and I'm probably not going to do him justice. I'm just talking about one part, is Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas is a medieval thinker. And Thomas Aquinas, and just to show you that never listen to what kids call you in school. Does anybody know his nickname? That what kids, what all the kids called him? Because he was a big lumbering guy. They called him the dumb ox. And Thomas Aquinas is probably the most brilliant philosopher in the history of humanity. So, someone calls you a dumb ox, just say, hey, remember Thomas Aquinas, right? Oh, Aquinas, okay, now what does Aquinas do? Aquinas was influenced by Aristotle, that's right, Joseph, yeah. But not just Aristotle, see, Aquinas is different. Aquinas is like, I like Plato, I like Aristotle. So what I'm going to do, this is Thomas Aquinas' job. And we talked about this last semester. I think we talked on Aquinas. Aquinas says this. I'm going to take 
Plato, and I'm going to take Aristotle, I'm going to take all these great thinkers, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to synthesize them to come up with a theory to explain all of reality. Now, can you imagine? <laughs> Betty, what's your job? Well, I'm just going to come up with this thing. Oh, what are you going to do? Oh, just to explain all of reality, the entire nature of reality. That's what he tried. That's what he takes on. And you know what? He gave it a college try. He gave it a shot. He, he did quite well. And so he's trying to explain all of reality. And so for, for Aquinas, he says, you know what matters a lot? Is our heavenly home. So he's influenced by, well, by the Bible, of course, because that is our home. Don't get me wrong. But he's also influenced by Plato. Look up. But Plato, but uh, Aquinas also said, the world that we live in also matters. And that's influenced by Aristotle. So, play, uh, so Aquinas is like this. Hey, it goes both up and here matters. Both matter. Okay? So he's really, really helpful in some ways. But this is a problem. Here's a problem. So what Aquinas does, he says, okay, these two realms matter. On one hand, we have the realm of the world. We can use reason and look at nature and understand the way the world works. Right? And that would produce what? Science. Right? A lot of science would come out of that. So look at the world, use our senses, look at the world, it makes sense, use reason, and the world can be understood. So let's talk about that. And then he says, hang on, there's another, there's another level. That's the bottom level of a, of a, of a two-story building. That's the bottom level. The top level is the level of God. So there's two levels to reality. There's a level of God, theology, revelation, the Bible. Those are beautiful things because they're about God. But, 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 we also have God's nature, his creation, and reason, and science. And those are good things. And together, we can make sense of reality. You with me? So, Thomas Aquinas says, I'm going to make a two-story building. The upper story is theology and things about God. The lower story is the world and the things of our senses and using reason. Good. We can understand the world. Right? Oh, hang on. There's a problem. And do you know what the problem is? What happens? Mike, you're down here. You're, you're, you've been observing things. You've been observing bugs. And you've been observing trees. And making some observations about the way things work. According to Aquinas, you're using your senses. And you're using your, your eyes. And you're writing. And you're drawing. And you're, and you're able to understand nature. Right? Now, I'm a theologian, I'm like, Mike, oh, that's so good of you to look at those little bugs. But what you really need to do is remember that God is, and that he is good, and, and, and that the, you know, the, the Bible is, is sublime. And, and, but for you, you're like, okay, that may be true, but do I really need to consult God or theology or anything to look at bugs? Do I really need to care about that upper story? 
No, I'll just look at bugs and I can make sense of things. And so what happens is you have a separation. You have a separation between faith and the things of God and science. And so when you hear our health minister saying, or not our health minister, you hear somebody say, we're just following the science. Don't be bringing God into the equation. Because what has God got to do? You know, get, Sunday morning, do your worship, whatever you guys do. I'm talking about science. Raw data. The way things truly are. You can, you can do whatever you want with your theology and Bible stuff. But it's got nothing to do with the real world. Faith and science are completely separate. Where does that idea come from? Aquinas. This is huge. There's a separation of faith from reason, the supernatural from the natural, theology from science. And over time, over time, you get people who are looking at the world and theologians saying, oh, Gene, you can't look at the world. You need to consult me, the theologian, because I am the theologian and theology matters. And you're like, yeah, I'm good. I'll just do my thing, you do your thing. And when you're looking at bugs and when you're looking at nature and trying to make sense of it, you're doing early science. What you're doing is you're just looking at the world that you can see. And you're not really consulting God. It's not like you don't believe in God, but you're just not consulting him because you don't need him. You're looking at the world that you can see. And that world that you can see is called the seculum, which is where we get the word secular. Oh, that's a secular, a secular world. That, that sec, the seculum is a, is a world that you can see and touch. Okay. So, this poor Thomas Aquinas, and he's brilliant. He is brilliant, and I probably haven't done, done very, very well, but uh, the, I, the roots of secularism, many people would argue, is found in the Middle Ages. There's other guys involved. But Aquinas kind of sets it up. Now, that was the hardest part. Did you follow that? Yeah? Did you guys follow that okay? <laughs> okay, good, good. It's going to get easier now. We're hitting the modern period. We're hitting the modern period, okay? Again, one of the big ideas I want you to know is that ideas have consequences. Ideas have consequences. And so we go from the Middle Ages into the modern period. And the modern period has at least three parts to it. You have the Renaissance, the Reformation, and the Enlightenment. And what you have here is a shift, not so much away from God, but just more of an emphasis on the individual. And in the Renaissance, which is around, you know, the period around the 14th century, the 1300s, around there, um, it's a change of mood, and if you're to, yeah, but a different kind of humanism, Laurie. Well, maybe this is a humanism you mean. It's, a, it's not a secular humanism. It's a humanism that still believes in God, but an emphasis on the human being. So if there was a model of the Middle Ages, life is short. Let's prepare to die and go up to heaven. The motto of the Renaissance is life is short. Let's party as much as we can while we're down here. In the words of Trooper, we're here for a good time but not a long time, so have a good time. 
Come on. Yeah, come on. Sun don't shine every day, right? Sorry. You like that, John? You like that little trooper reference there? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, the Renaissance is, 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 is quite huge. The Renaissance changes people's attention. So, instead of looking up at heaven, they say, let's look at the world. Instead of looking to the future when we're going to be up in heaven, let's look at the present. And so, the question that's being asked, that people are starting to ask, is this. Do we really need God to make sense of things? Now, I know, and at this point they would say, yes, yes, we still do. But in practice, more and more people are like, I'm not so sure. Now, later on, fast forward a few hundred years, you get Napoleon listening to a guy named Laplace. And Napoleon and Laplace is, is explaining how the solar system works. And Napoleon asks him the question, oh, well, what about God? And Laplace has a famous line, I have no need of such a hypothesis. I don't need God to make sense of all this. He's starting to see what's going on. And so you have a shift from heaven to earth, from the future to the present, a shift from finding our meaning in God to finding meaning in nature. One of the things that happens in the Renaissance is, is this. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's huge. So you see this glasses case, right? In the medieval world, to make sense of this, um, to make sense of this, I would have to have a, an idea of God and God creating these perfect glasses cases in heaven and just being, uh, you know, a representation of the perfect glasses case in heaven. And I'd use that as a making sense of this. It's kind of weird, but it's true. By the time you get to this age, they're like, yeah, let's just leave that part aside. The meaning of the glasses case is found by within it. Let's just look inside it and we'll figure it out without bringing God into the equation. That's one of the big shifts. And so nature is autonomous. Nature, you can just study nature. And whether or not God exists is neither here nor there. Nature is just something you can study by itself. And because nature, nature is just neutral. You just look at it. You don't worry about God. Nature is just neutral. That means we can use whatever power we want as human beings to, to, uh, to master nature. Okay? And you get to the Reformation. So who's the key guy in the Reformation? Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther was the one who um, fought against the, uh, the Catholic Church. And he argued that uh, every human being can know God through Jesus Christ on their own. They don't need to go through the Pope. They don't need to go through all these, you know, bells and whistles and sacraments in order to know God. You can just know God through faith, by grace. Amen? Right, we're good Protestants here, right? Amen. Good. Um, so that's good. But let me ask you this. I'm going to, because I've been talking for a while. Okay. So you think about Martin Luther. Martin Luther says you don't need the Pope. You don't need the Catholic Church. You don't need any of that. It's just you can know God by yourself. It's by grace, through faith, you can know God. Right? You can just know him directly. 
You don't need a priest. You don't need to confess. You can just know God, right? Okay. Now I want you to answer this question. I'm going to have you break into groups. <laughs> this is it's not an easy question, but think about, okay, just that idea that I can approach God on my own. How does that affect the growth of secularism? Or how does that, um, how does that affect this movement away from our need for God? It's, it's a strange question, but I'm just give it a shot. Talk among yourselves. How does Martin Luther's idea that I can know God by myself actually move us further away from or further towards kind of a secular understanding of reality. <laughs> okay, so you guys do it on the chat, okay? No talking about truckers, just talk about this, okay? <laughs> I'm watching you guys carefully this week, I hope you realize that. Oh, Jack, you're on the right track. Okay, so what kind of influence do you think this has? I'll, I'll get you to say, our, our, our friends online, you guys, you, you killed it. You did really well. You're, you're on, on, on the right track. So... Take 10 points to Gryffindor for that one. That was good. Uh, what, what are some of the things that show up? What are some of the consequences, do you think? Well, one of the things that we discussed were, you know, prior to that, um, even if you weren't a Christian, but you thought maybe there was an afterlife, you, you had to go to the church. Yeah, so the importance of the church and community, and that's why, yeah, these guys were saying that. And now, now, with this... It's like, well, Well, that's right. It is my truth and me and Jesus. Because who is the unit that has faith in Jesus? Me. me. Which is true. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Luther's wrong. There's a, there's, there's a great book uh, by a guy named Alistair McGrath called the, um, Christianity's Dangerous Idea. And this is the... I, I, and and the, there's another book by, um, by a guy named... Um, Gregory, his last name is Gregory, and it's called The Unintended Reformation. So they're talking about the unintended consequences. And one of the unintended consequences is you have Martin Luther saying, unless I am convinced, you know, unless I am convinced by, you know, and he lists all, all the things that he needs to be convinced by, he goes, I'm going to hold to what I, I hold, and, you know, my conscience is held captive to the Word of God, here I stand, I can do no other, right? Which sounds really good, and, it's, it, is, and it is good. But basically, Luther said, to a degree, he says, I don't care what the church has said, because they've often made mistakes. I've read scripture, this is what I've come up with. Now, Luther would say, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in communion with some other thinkers in history, but he'd say, I've read the Bible, and this is where I stand. Well, the starting point is self, the individual. And so the starting point for truth is me. 
And here's the thing. If I choose to have faith, it also means I have the freedom to not have faith. And so my will to choose yes or no about the things of God, what matters most is me and my choice. And so my choice really matters. My will really matters. Now, those are good things, but I'm just saying ideas have consequences. And what happens when you take God and you remove God from the equation, then what you have is I have me and my will and my choice. Does that sound familiar? So this idea that me, my freedom to choose, my freedom to say yes or to say no. The other thing that Luther introduced is the idea of the priesthood of all believers, that we're, everybody is in the same boat. There's no priest, there's no, we're all in the same boat, right? Every person can access God, which is great. And again, amen. But these ideas do have consequences. They do have consequences. And uh, for Luther, he's writing at this time, around the time, um, like the reason why Luther was effective as he was, was because of the Gutenberg press that had just been invented. And so you have the rise of technology. Now again, I am glad that the Reformation took place. I am a Protestant, just for the record. It's recording. I am a Protestant. Uh, and um, and so, the, so this is really important right? But there are consequences. So, and one of the things that happened, and nobody really talks about this, but Luther, when he has this big statement, ah, unless I'm convinced by scripture, I hear, you know, I, I'm bound by my conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. There's actually a, a follow-up statement. Have I ever told you this? There's a follow-up statement by one of the secretaries there on the Catholic side and said, Luther, if you reject all the councils, you reject all of tradition, how will we know anything is true? Which is an interesting thing. Now, I think there's a way through that, but Luther's ideas have a huge impact. And what they impact is what comes next. And that is what is called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Yeah. And so the Enlightenment takes place in the 18th century. You're noticing how these ideas are building on each other? And so the Enlightenment, what happens is you have this shift again. And the shift goes from here. It moves away from God's truth, God's word, and revelation, and the Bible. And then he said, instead of trusting in the Bible, I'm going to trust in reason. Reason matters most. Now, why do you think people started trusting in reason rather than the Bible? <laughs> You'll see it in your notes. Well, I think there was a gradual shift and it, it, today in what people focus on in narcissism. Yeah, so that's getting closer. Yeah. Because when you start focusing on me and how important I am. Yeah, once, once, we, once we're the starting point, there is a shift. Now, what happens here is there's a shift away from God's word and revelation to the importance of reason. Now, there's a reason why this happens. Huh? And the reason for this, there's a number of reasons, but one is this. Right around this period, right before the 18th century, there's this horrible, horrible war. Not that there's such a thing as a beautiful, beautiful war, but this is a horrible war, and it's called the 30-Year War. And it lasted for 30 years. That's why it's called 30-Year War. Um, but it 
it was a war that was not that much different than World War I. Have you ever heard of the Thirty Year War? Yeah. In that war, and most of the casualties were in modern day, what would be modern day Germany, um, in that war, eight million people died. Incredible amount of suffering. And the war was between Catholics and Protestants, and Protestants against Catholics, and Protestants and Catholics fighting against Protestants, and other groups of Protestants fighting with some Catholics against other Protestants. And at the end of the 30-year war, 8 million people were dead and nothing changed. And people said, you know what? If this is what Christianity is all about, I'm done. In fact, maybe there's something, instead of fighting over God, maybe there's something we could all agree on that's not contentious, that we could just, that could be neutral. So let's stop fighting over God and Catholicism or Lutheranism or Calvinism. What is one thing we can all agree on? What is one thing we all have? Reason. We can use our minds. Reason is a good thing. And so you have religious wars. The other thing that happens in this time is you have people traveling around the world. It's a world global exploration. And people are like, you know what? We went to these other places. There's people groups there. They look very different from us. They believe in a different kind of God and they have their own sense of religion. Huh. Why is our religion right? And they have their own religion. So that starts getting people's mind. And then you have a guy named Copernicus who says, uh, by the way, guys, Turns out the earth is not at the center of all things. It's, this, it's the sun. And Galileo comes along and Galileo, Galilei, which is one of the coolest names in church history, Galileo, Galilei, um, said, yeah, I was looking at things and sure enough, the earth is not at the center, but the sun. And they're like, well, wait a minute. We read scripture. We read, you know, Psalm 104. We read Psalm 96. We read Psalm 93. It, it, it seems to suggest that the earth is at the center. And he's like, yeah, no. Well, I wonder what else we're wrong about. Right? Isaac Newton comes on the scene, same thing. And so there's this big shift, a big shift that begins to take place in the Enlightenment. And the shift moves away from God and the shift goes to the individual. The individual matters most. The individual is a starting point. And one of the key guys in all this is Rene Descartes. Do you guys know Rene Descartes? Yeah? What is Rene Descartes' famous line? I think, therefore I am. Right? You guys know that? I think, therefore I am. So, oh, sorry. So, you guys know about, you know about the horse that went into the bar, do you? No? Well, the horse goes into a bar and um, asks if he could have a drink. Or the bartender said, uh, what would you like a drink? And the horse says, I think not. And what happens? The horse disappears. Now, you guys are probably thinking that this is some kind of joke about philosophy, 
But don't get ahead of yourself because to get ahead of yourself is to put Descartes before the horse. <laughs> Come on, that's gold, that's gold, baby. <laughs> oh, as soon as I saw my notes, I'm like, okay, this will be a great little respite. <laughs> Oh, I, I thought that was quite funny. Okay, yes, yes, Descartes. Now, just very quickly. <laughs> um, why is Descartes so important? Like, I think, therefore I am. What, what does that even mean? What does that mean? What's he doing? Why do you think he says that? Yeah. That's right. What Descartes is saying is that he's actually trying to answer a question. And the question is, can we know anything? Right? Because God, if God is removed from the equation, then the question is, okay, if there is no God, if there is no revelation, can we even know anything? And so Descartes is like, okay, well, let me think. Let me think. What, can, what, what do we know? Huh, I'm thinking. So at least I know I exist. Okay, let's start there, which is okay. But two things happen. When he says, I think, therefore I am, he's basically saying everything in the past is useless in helping me understand the way of the world, the nature of the world. Nothing from the past is helpful. Secondly, in order to understand anything, the starting point is me and my mind. Not God and his word and revelation. I'm the starting point. And, and who am I? I am here. So you get a guy like Ray Kurzweil from Google, chief engineer, wants to put his brain into a computer in the next 40 years, transhumanism, so he can live forever. In his mind, his brain is who he is. Well, where does that come from? My, I am my brain. As if my brain is all, all I am. But that idea that my brain and my body are separate and my brain is who I am, I think, therefore I am, comes right from Descartes. And we have a lot of those influences, right, today? That has a huge influence. Now, one of the things that happens, if, 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 I, if, if I begin with me, and who I am, yeah, you no longer need faith to make sense of the world. That's good, Denisa, yeah. You don't really need God. And so what you have happening in the 18th century is this shift away from God and a shift away from Christianity. And they don't want to quite get rid of the idea of a God. So where, what do you see developing? Deism. Deism is just a belief that there's some kind of God that gets things going. It doesn't have to be personal, just some God watching over us from the distance. So this God, what is this God like? Well, he's like a watchmaker, right? And what does a watchmaker do? I'm thinking old school watches, which is my watch. It's an old school watch. Every morning, what do I do? I get up. And I wind my watch. Yes, I have a wind-up watch. <laughs> have you guys heard of those? Yeah. Um, you wind. So what does God do? Well, God may exist. The Bible, we're not going to care about the Bible. But God, this God may exist. But what he does is he winds up the world and he lets it run. 
He's a watchmaker. And so this idea that God is somehow uninvolved in this world, he just kicks things off and then lets things run, comes out of the 18th century. And it's interesting because in the 18th century, you have a lot of so-called Christians who are trying to make Christianity, they're trying to make Christianity cool, but in order to make Christianity cool, they basically take all the miracles of, from the Bible, all supernatural things, the Trinity, all those aspects of God in the Bible, they remove it all. And one guy who was famous for doing that, who took the, the New Testament, he removed all the miracles and all that, and it was produced in a New Testament, was who? Yeah, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson did that. He was a deist, he wasn't a Christian. And Thomas Jefferson said, in one of the worst predictions, he says, by the end of this generation, the entire world will be deist. Didn't happen. But here's the thing. If you think, okay, God exists, he winds up the world and lets it run, it's not a big step from there to say what? There is no God. Where are, we, are we kidding ourselves? There is no God. Why do we need God? Why do you think he winds up the world? And this is, you get a guy coming on the scene, a guy named Darwin. And Darwin takes on these guys who would say, you know, God's designed the world. He goes, God hasn't designed this world. Look at this world. This world is brutal. Have you not seen the way animals treat one another? You're saying to me that this God is peaceful and he's loving. Look at the animal kingdom. And the other thing for Darwin is, look what happened to my daughter. She died. Where was your God? And so Darwin says, just get rid of this whole idea of God. We don't need God. What you see is what you get. And there's other people around him that, 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 that take that on. Now we're going to get to the last section in a moment. Yeah, I'm not sure if Darwin was a deist, Joseph. I think towards the end he was an atheist. Uh, there's, there's some debate on that. He, he, he shifted. And I think that the key difference was, was his uh, death of his daughter. Now, let me just share one more thing before we talk about postmodernism. <laughs> one more thing. Can you guess which movement, this is really important, what movement came out of the Enlightenment? What Christian movement came out of the Enlightenment? Does anybody know? It, it, it forms right at the time of the Enlightenment. I'm sorry? Was this the Great Disappointment Era? There is a Great Disappointment Well. Oh, that's good. Yeah, no, in the 19th century, it's, 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 uh, it, it is a time of where most of the cults emerged. That, that, is, that, that is true, and there's a whole bunch of them. That's a whole other conversation, but that's a good, good observation. Um, the YMC, you know what, movement, so that's part of it, Laurie, but it's just our, our church and a Baptist church and all these churches, we are called 
evangelicals. So our church, like we are part of an evangelical. What does it mean to be evangelical? Does anybody know? Yeah, a lot of the mission societies were found in the late 18th century and early 19th century. Yeah, yeah. So evangelicalism emerges. Evangelical, we're an evangelical church. Evangelicalism says, you know, the Bible matters. We need to share the gospel. Conversion matters. And the cross really matters. And so a lot of, so this is a big movement. But the, our church, our movement came out of the modern world, out of modernity. And so it's interesting because what do you find within the evangelical church? The emphasis on self, me and Jesus. The emphasis on technique. If we get the right technology, we can reach lots of people for Jesus. The, the uh, modern world is very pragmatic. Evangelicals, we are very pragmatic. You know, the evangelical that goes into the um, medieval cathedral and just shakes his head because there's no blank space on the wall for the PowerPoint. Um, sorry. Evangelicals care a lot about apologetics, the reason for God. Let's use reason to point to the reality of God. Apologetics. And it also splinters into tiny and tinier pieces. One of the things that's really interesting is that the evangelical movement comes out of the modern world and it often mirrors the modern world. And if you want to understand what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with the church today, and everybody's writing articles, what's wrong with the church, it seems to be breaking into a million pieces. Have you ever thought about that? What's happening to the modern world? It's breaking into a million pieces. So whatever's happening in the modern world was happening to the church as well. So it's an interesting time period. Okay. Let's talk about this last thing. And then we're, then we're caught up to now, okay? And that is a postmodern period, which is basically from the 19, uh, to early, uh, maybe the 1960 onwards, though its roots are a little bit earlier. What is postmodernity? Um, well, postmodernity is a growing uneasiness that people are having about the modern world. <laughs> because what, what happens in the early 20th century? There's two big events. <laughs> world War I, World War II, right? People are like, what? You know, because the modern world would say, hey, things are more and more modern. Things are getting better, baby. Progress. We're going up and to the right. Everything's getting better. And then World War I happens. And then World War II happens. And they're like, ooh. Maybe the modern world isn't as good as we thought it was. Maybe we should put the brakes on all these ideas that we think about the modern world. And so it's a pushback. It's a pushback against all the things about the modern world. And so what it does is begins to ask the question, huh, I wonder if I can trust any of these. I wonder if I can trust anything. The modern world just says, I, I, I don't trust. I don't trust what are called meta-narratives. Meta-narratives is basically an explanation of the world. So people saw in Nazi Germany that in Nazi Germany, it says, you know, this is the way of the world and this is a way of hope. And they said, ah, that didn't work out very well. 
They saw communism and communism, the same sort of thing. This is the way of the world. This is, this, these are the revolutions that will take place to lead us into this utopia called communism. And people look at Stalin, and they look at Pol Pot, and they look at China, and they're like, yeah, man, I'm not so sure that these ideas are, are that good. And postmodernity is basically saying, I'm suspicious about everything. I'm suspicious about everything. Um, and so postmodernity begins to question truth. And it begins to say, you know what? Mike, you're telling me that. You're telling me what happened. But I know your background. You're just saying that. Not because it's true, but because this is how you grew up. That shapes what you're saying. It's not true. It's just your perspective. It's your truth. It's not true for everyone. So you're starting to get this. And people begin to, um, people begin to, to challenge everything. It's like, if, if, if there is no such thing as truth, because we, we went down that road before. We saw what happened in communism. We saw, saw what, if there is no such thing as truth, then all we have is personal truth. And everything can be deconstructed and shown to be biased, including the Bible. I mean, you look at the Bible, it's just, you know, it's just the, the, the winners, the winners of this world telling the story. But what about the Canaanites? What about all the people that were on the losing end? If they told the story, it would be a different story. And so the Bible is subject to criticism. It's doubted. Um, medical practices. It's like, oh, you're just doing those medical practices because you're a Westerner. What makes you think that your medical practices are any better than practices in other cultures? And people would say, well, no, it's true. And then like, ha, whose truth? It's true to you. It may not be true to me. In fact, this idea that there's this truth out there, it doesn't exist. Truth is unknowable. You can't know if there's something that's true. See, it's a real pushback against the modern world. Truth is unknowable, but here's, here's, the, here's the problem. It's a small shift. It's a small shift to say truth. Nobody can know the truth. Two, there is no such thing as truth. There's a big difference between nobody can know the truth and there's no such thing as truth. Now, here's the thing. If you live in a world where there's no such thing as truth, you just have your truth, I have my truth, then what happens when ISIS comes? What happens when Putin wants to invade Ukraine? What happens when medical assistance in dying is introduced? And be like, well, who's to say? Who's to say? Who knows if something is true? And that goes back to the story I told you about, that one Japanese student. I said, is it not wrong to kill a baby? If I killed this baby, is that not wrong? He says, it would be wrong to me, but I cannot say it's generally wrong. And the thing is, if, if, if there is no such thing as, as truth, it's just personal truth, then how do we speak out against anything that goes wrong in this world? 
Because who's to say it's wrong? It may be wrong to you, Norm. It may not be wrong. Like, I'm sure ISIS, to them, they're doing what is right. And who are we to say with our Western prejudice that they're wrong? And so this is one of the problems. And one of the highest values in a postmodern world is, is tolerance. But it's tolerance that's a little bit different. Tolerance is, is not like, traditionally tolerance is, you know, you have an idea, I may disagree, but I'm going to respect the fact that you have your right to express your idea. Tolerance in a postmodern context means all, your, all ideas are equally valid. But there's more. In, in a postmodern world, power is a big deal. And so in a postmodern world, oppression can be only carried out by those who are in power, which often is, would be white males, generally. Those who are on the margins of society cannot oppress because they're on the margins. Only those who are victims can have moral authority to speak. If you are on the, if you're in the, 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 the mainstream, if you're, a, if you're a male and you're Western, then really this disqualifies you from having much to say because you're in a position of power. Because Christianity has been in a position of power for a long time in the West, then Christians and Christianity is seen as being in a privileged position and therefore has no authority to speak. So sometimes you wonder in our culture today, it's like you get all these different voices talking about different things and you think, well, how, why can't a Christian also say their voice? We're just one of the many voices. And the answer is like, no, no, no. Christianity is disqualified from speaking because Christianity is associated with power. And that's one of the dangers when we hitch our wagon to power a little too much in the 60s and the 70s. And so that is why Christianity in our culture today is often marginalized and not given a voice because it is seen as a dominant, powerful remnant from the past and therefore has nothing valuable to say. Yeah. No, and it is true. And, and Christians have been judgmental, and they have been uh, a little too close to power. Um, in the 80s, what was it called? What was it in, in the states? The moral majority. Yeah, the moral majority. And the, the Pat Robertsons. The, I mean, the, all the reasons why I wasn't a Christian. Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and all those guys. Um, they were, there was a deep connection between politics and, and the church. Yeah, going to the site of 9-11 would have been powerful. The whole rescue uh, support for what was happening there 
was in the church that was across the street. Yeah. Well, and that's the museum that explains how many people escaped and lives were saved. Well, absolutely. And, and, and so it's individual experiences where we become servants. Yeah. Absolutely, and and that is, and we're going to get to that because that is the way forward is to recover what 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 it means to be the church. Yeah, and yeah, we just need to be the church. But I'm just explaining how how we got to now. Um, in in a postmodern world, what matters most is my subjective experience. In a postmodern world, what matters a lot is how I feel about things. In a postmodern world, is um, not only how I feel about things, but um, what my experience is like. So you think about post-modernity, um, it, it affects churches. Yeah, good, Denise, <laughs> you're ahead of me on this one. Um, often how we do churches, and you see this, is, is we, talk, we don't talk about sin, we talk about brokenness. Uh, we don't talk about you know, the holiness, but we talk about maybe pain or fear. Um, we talk about... Um, emotion over faith and and our faith becomes more and more private me and jesus it's about me and jesus it's about my my personal walk and think about how many times when somebody asks you a question a tough question and you respond this way you say and i do this too i catch myself and i'm trying not to do this but when somebody asks me a question so what about what about the truckers? Or what about vaccines? Or what about this? And often my response is, well, to me, you see what I just did? I've, I've situated my conversation about what I think is true to simply be my subjective view. Um, and there's a humility to that. To me, this is what I think. But often people say, well, to me, this is what I'm, I, I suggest. But what happens is, is all of truth and all value gets reduced into our personal subjective opinion. And it just stays here. And so one of the problems, uh, if I were to, to, to summarize just how we got to now, what we do see, some of the legacies is this, is... The starting point for anything is the self. And you see this in, in the modern world and in the postmodern world. The self matters a lot. Secondly, what matters a lot is the will. What I want, what I think I ought to do really matters a lot. So it's the self and the self-will. The other thing is... Um, is, is um, the breakdown of society into smaller and smaller complex pieces. I do, we'll talk about that when we talk about technology. There's a privatization that takes place. Freedom of choice is the highest value. Meaning, how, how do you find meaning in a postmodern world? You can't, can you? Or what kind of meaning can you have? Like if somebody says, what is the meaning of life? It's just a personal meaning. Well, to me, I think life is about the journey. You know, 
Uh, well, yeah, well, to me, it's about the destination. And that's cool, that's cool, that's cool. It's just personal opinions. So if you said to somebody, is there such a thing as a meaning to life? You're just left with personal opinions or subjective experiences. Now, the problem is, Jesus says, I'm the truth, the life, and the way. Right? No one comes to the Father except through me. The way that's presented now is, well, to me, Jesus, Jesus is my truth. He's my way. He's my life. But I get it, man. It may not be for you. And, and the problem is, is, for Christians sharing our faith now in our world is, is, is different than maybe back in the 80s or the, or the 70s. In the 70s or the 80s, it'd be like, Jesus is the, is, is the truth, the life, and the way. I disagree. Let's talk about this. Here's my argument. Here's your argument. Now, if I say to somebody, more often than not, you know what? Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way. People would be like, I'm so glad that you think that. That's so cool, man. Does that work for you? Yeah, not for me, but I'm so glad. You do you. No, but he's the truth. I'm so glad you think that. Yeah, he's not for me, but I get it. And you don't go anywhere. And that is what it makes sharing the gospel in our current culture extremely difficult. It's not people who are wanting to argue. <laughs> well, if there is an argument, if somebody says, you know, I think Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way, the response is, well, of course you would. You're a white male, so you're in a position of power, and that's what, you know, it comes right out of this oppressive colonial way of thinking, you know, God and guns and follow the flag. I get that. So that's why I want to have nothing to do with Christianity. Because it's oppressive. Or it's, I'm so glad you do you and I'll do me. And, and you know what? In many ways, we're both right. I'm like, no, you, you don't think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, but that's okay. You do you, I do. So how do we share the gospel? in our current culture it's really hard i don't know if you've if you've if you found it. in fact i find myself more and more reluctant to share the gospel because the moment i do that i feel like i'm imposing something on somebody else and they have their own private thing why am i imposing my private views on their private views because everybody has their own private views now the whole point the whole point is, there's a reason how we got to now. These ideas to how we're at today, they, 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 they come through history. Now, I also think, and we're going to look at this in the weeks ahead, I think by re going back into history, I think there's some places where we can, um, we can linger and bring them back, and I think they can help us do evangelism today. But right now, in our current postmodern culture, it's very, very difficult. Does that make sense? One more thing. Honestly, one more thing. In a, land, in a world where there is no objective truth, you have your truth, Lisa. I have my truth. 
There's no object. There's no meta truth. There's no overarching truth. We just have our own personal truths, right? You with me? Okay, so when we disagree with one another over vaccines, over something serious, we unfriend, yes? Yes, we unfriend. But let's say we have to deal with each other and we can't unfriend. How do we deal with one another if, there, if we cannot appeal to truth, what is good, what is right? If, if, there, if, if there is no overarching idea of what is true, what is right, and what is good, and we just have our personal truths, but we bumped up against each other, how do we navigate our way through that? Yeah, but let's say we can't. Ah, yes. You appeal to power. Because I can't appeal to truth. So what I am going to do is like, I will use power to make you, get you out of my way or make you submit. And so what is the language of power? The language of power is politics. And have you not noticed that our entire culture is soaked in politics now? Everything is political. Everything is political. And everything is seen through the lens of politics. And it has to, because there's no overarching thing that we can appeal to. If we can't say, you know, Ernie, you and I will both agree that there's, there's truth out there, and so let's hash it out as we're appealing to truth. No. There's no truth. You have your truth, I have my truth, but we're in each other's way. What do we do? We use power. We use politics. And that is why our society is completely politicized. You can't talk about beauty. You can't talk about music. You can't talk about, you know, the Super Bowl halftime show without it being political. Everything's political. Everything is, is, is politically symbolized, politically charged. Which leads to the question, I know, Laura, you saw that. <laughs> um, leads to the question, how do we as Christians navigate this strange world of the political? Well, maybe. Tune in next week. Tune in next week. <laughs> Well, I, well, well, it's true. Well, and if there is no, if there is no, um, if there's nothing that we can say is true, that's universal. Basically, there's one thing that is true that we can all agree on in our culture. <laughs> yeah, that's there is no truth. That is, ironically, yeah, that is a truth statement. The one thing we could all agree on is that we should have freedom of will. That's, what, that's the only virtue that's left in our culture, is I need to have the freedom to do whatever the heck I want to do. And it gets a little complicated, but uh, that is what we're going to be looking at next week. We're going to be diving into the world of politics. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, 
stop the recording here. So this ends this section. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.